lives and see, Father, the areas where they failed and the areas where they succeeded, and Lord, the areas where you blessed. And so, Father, once again, we just lift up tonight asking that you would bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings, neighbors. And you too. How you doing, Allison? Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 27, and we'll pick up as we're looking at the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, keeping in mind that at this time Israel, the nation Israel, has been divided. It was originally a country of 12 tribes. Well, Ten of the tribes have rebelled, and that is what is called the kingdom, the northern kingdom, or the kingdom of Israel. And then there are two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that are the southern kingdom, and we are looking at the kings of the southern kingdom. Tonight we'll be looking at two, in chapters 27 and 28, we'll be looking at Jotham and we'll be looking at Ahaz. One king did okay, the other king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what we must consider when we're looking at these kings of long ago and we see the things that transpired in their kingdoms, we see kings because they sought after the Lord and God blessed regardless of their shortcomings and we saw the evil ones as God did not bless and it was because not so much of their inability but their refusal to obey God and to submit themselves to the Lord. And so what we must consider, because each of these kings, too much has been given, much is required, each of these kings have been given stewardship over God's people, over God's nation. And so we must carefully consider what we allow to have influence in the lives of those that we have stewardship over. A steward is one who has responsibility over the riches or the possessions of his master. And God has given us all portions of his riches in which we must care for. We've been given his children, his grandchildren. We've been given a church. We've been given finances. And I I must have that desire to honor God as I train up my children in the way that they should go. As I have influence on my grandchildren, the ministry to my wife, the ministry here at the church. And again, make it, equate it to your life as well. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 15, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. And so the picture here is, is that the Lord given to these stewards portions of his riches. And the key here is he's given to each one as God has enabled them. So what God gives to us And the ministry that God calls us to, God enables us in the midst of that. In Matthew 25, verse 29 through 30, he says, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's speaking to the one that had an improper perspective of the Lord and was not obedient in the things that God spoke to him. And so again, we've got this contrast as we're back in our second chronicle study of King Jotham and King Ahaz. Verse 1 of chapter 27, Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. 
It's believed that Jotham, he ruled as co-regent with his father Uzziah. If you remember last week in our study of King Uzziah, Uzziah was a good king. He was actually a very good king. He reigned for many years, but there was that one time when pride entered into his life. And he wanted more than that which God had given him. Remember, God will enable me in what he has given me, but he stepped out of bounds in that he went into the... um, He went into the temple and he took the place of the priest, that which he was not allowed to do by God. It was a command of God because king and priest were to be, the offices of them were to be kept separate because they were to be fulfilled only in Jesus Christ and later on in the church. Well, as he did did that, God struck him with leprosy. And it doesn't matter who you are, a king or a beggar and everybody else in between, the Bible's very clear, if you're stricken with leprosy, you are to be separated from the general population. So King Uzziah, <coughs> excuse me, King Uzziah was separated, and so that would be a real hard situation to rule your kingdom. Well, more than likely, he ruled it through his son Jotham. And so he's been restricted during the years that he has leprosy, and now his son, I'm sure, had training and and actual practical experience, and then Uzziah dies, and now here we have Jotham in control. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, we are told, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. And, well, Jotham, he seemed to learn his father's lesson. He saw the Lord's rebuke upon this man. And look at verse 2. He has a desire to be honorable in the sight of the Lord. And it says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. He didn't commit that sin that his father did. But it says, But still the people acted corruptly. And so... He's got this situation in that he has a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord. He, he received the instruction of the thing, the situation that happened with his father, and he wants to be honorable before the Lord. He wants to present a kingdom that God would bless. But unfortunately, God gives us stewardship over our, 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 the immediate life, but he also gives us stewardship over the people, as I pointed out, that he put under us, And it says, but still, the last part of verse 2, but still the people acted corruptly. In 2 Kings chapter 15, which is a parallel account of what we're looking at here, we're told that Jotham did not remove the high places of worshiping false gods. And so he had stewardship over God's people. He had stewardship over God's land. And he allowed this to continue, this worship of false gods to continue on. If he would have eradicated it, I wonder what the influence he would have had in the future generations. Because if you look at the next chapter, 28, verse 4, and this is part of the testimony of his son Ahaz, it says, Ahaz, and he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree. And so again, this is the worship of false gods. And as this was left undone, it's like a cancer that permeates within a society. And my point here is, is that we've got to consider the things that we allow into our realm of stewardship that God has given us. And as I've mentioned before, my kids, there were certain things that weren't allowed in the house. If they were brought into the house, then I would deal with it. I would usually, if there was like, for instance, a CD that was inappropriate music or whatever, I would just simply destroy it. 
And if they borrowed it from somebody, then they would have to deal with that person. And so Joaz, as far as what dad did, I'm sorry, Jotham, he did as well. Both of them we see in verses, I'm not going to read them because of time, but three through six. He was a successful warrior builder. And so he did add to the country during his time on the throne But again, we have to consider the idolatrous worship that he allowed to continue and the effect that it had, specifically the effect that it had on his son Ahaz, who became one of the worst kings in all of Judah. Verse 7, Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all of his wars and his ways, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So Jotham rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. So King Ahaz, and that's where we're going to obviously spend the majority of our time here tonight. What we're going to see in King Ahaz is, is this evil king, in this evil king, is what a person does when he does not have God because you can kind of draw a bit of a parallel between him and, uh, and, and Israel, or Jacob. Jacob was a heel catcher, that's what the name literally means. He was a manipulator. As he didn't seek out the Lord, he would try to manipulate the situations of his life. But God arrested his heart one night, and he wrestled with God, and, and God met him in a way that, well, God changed his name. God changed his name to Israel, and Israel literally means governed by God. And so Jacob, to a degree, learned a lesson. King Ahaz, unfortunately, we do not see where he learned any such lesson. So the first thing that we see is that a person, when they do not have God, they have corrupt character. Verses 1 through 4 as we enter into chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Keep in mind, now that's the northern kingdom, and Israel never had a king that did what was right in the sight of God. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. It gets worse, verse 3. Now, again, Jotham, if you could talk to Jotham, listen, your, your son's going to be completely corrupt. And even worse than that, even worse than his idolatry, Understand what he's going to do to your grandchildren. Look at verse 3. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Himmon and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. The comparison of his character, notice what the Holy Spirit uses for Ahaz, it's King David. Today we would use Jesus Christ, he is the standard of perfection as we have the words of the Lord and the ways that he has directed us to conduct our lives. But even as we fall short and cling to grace, well that was David's testimony. On Thursday night we saw that in his great psalm of contrition, Psalm 51, David David's character only survived because of the grace of God. But we've seen his testimony as well. He's a man who committed murder. 
He's a man who committed adultery, neglected his family, and there was many issues with David, but David was a man who had a heart that would repent before God. This man Ahaz, he did not do as David had done. He has gone according to his own way, and he has not sought the Lord out. Matter of fact, he's completely immersed himself to a great degree, a huge degree, in this idolatry. So if you would ask God about what stood out about King David's character, well, he would tell you. Matter of fact, he did tell us in Acts 13.22. I've alluded to it quite often in our studies. It says, and when God, when he had removed him, that's King Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, now this is God's opinion of King David. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. Here's a man who has a passion to do the will of God. Here's a man who is after God's own heart. Here's a man who is imperfect, but we're all imperfect. Even as I said, we use Jesus Christ as our standard, but for the rest, we depend upon the grace of God. Because of our sins and our sinful nature, we cling to the grace of God. And again, that's what David did. That's what stood out to such a great degree in Psalm 51. Once again, I'll read verses 3 and 4. David said, For I acknowledge my transgressions, or my willful sins, and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's a picture of the heart of King David, the heart or the inner person of who David is or was. So the question seems to be in the evaluation of character, who does the sinner seek after? We're going to see where Ahaz, he sought after the world. That was the solution for his issues was to manipulate them through fellowship with the world. King David was always brought back to the place of seeking out God and forgiveness for his sin and the ways that God had set before him. The reason that David had a heart after God's was because of his repentance. As far as apart from repentance, you cannot have a heart for the Lord. We can never forget that our children are really God's children, just as the children of Israel were God's children as well. And what this evil king did was to take God's children and to offer them as human sacrifices to strange gods. Again, in verse 3, he burned incense in the valley of the son of Heman and burnt his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. To pass your child through the fire was basically to torture them to death. It's to take a young child, and it was common in worship. They have found these idols. They would have a bronze bowl that they would put over a fire and heat it to intense heat, and they would put a child, young child, in there and sacrifice that child. I can't even imagine the, just how horrible that must be. But what they're doing is they're trying to appease the gods. And he's trying, he doesn't have God. He doesn't have a relationship with God. And so Ahaz is walking in the ways of the world. Well, God thought these people so horrible that when Israel came into the promised land, God had commanded them to cleanse it completely of these people, to completely kill them. He's given them over 500 years or 400 years to repent. And they refused to repent. And so God brought judgment upon them. And so we have God who is a mighty God. And we have their false gods who are, well, non-existent. 
and, and God is a, enables Israel to purge them from the land. But the thing about it is, because of their flesh, they kept going back to these false gods. And it just, well, you just see the difference. And those false gods, you sacrifice your son for our God who is, he sacrificed his son for us. They're sacrificing their children for their benefit, but our father sacrificed his child for our benefit. He died because of our sins and our trespasses. He died as an expression of the love of God to all of humanity. He died so that we would have eternity with him. King Ahaz is going to die apart from God for all of eternity for what he has done. We must consider how we could cause our children again to pass through the fire. That's in this present age to not train them up in the way that they should go. It's to provoke them to wrath. It's for your deeds to hinder God's words. It's to set a bad example before them. And it's this which we must be diligent in this time because the world and the enemy is diligent to steal their souls. But we must preserve their souls by the word of God and through the word of God as it works in us and then it works through us into their lives. And it matters not what the age of our children is. There's always that opportunity. Now this being the case, we must consider there's only one human sacrifice that is acceptable to God and it doesn't have anything to do with them and it has everything to do with us. It's what the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Now notice how Paul accentuates this. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. He's trying to get our attention. He's saying, listen up. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God is merciful, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And he says, it's your reasonable service. So Christian, that's the least that we are to do, is to present our bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice. You look at the course of a person's life, well, it'd be a lot easier to present ourselves as a dead sacrifice. But God wants you to live for him because that's what's going to have impact. To present a human sacrifice is a thing that is unclean in the sight of God. There was only one that was acceptable in his sight, and that was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any other human sacrifice, if you would present yourself as a human sacrifice, that would be an unclean offering before the Lord. But to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, that's the hard thing to do. Because I must make the determination within my mind that I am going to do this every day. I'll be reminded, I need to be reminded every day that today I'm going to live for the Lord because prayerfully somebody will see my actions and hear my words and it would make a difference in their life. How much more so those in our own household that we would not grow weary of doing good, but we will continue steadfastly pushing forward. We're told in verse 2 to not be conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is that good and perfect will of God. To be conformed to something, it's so easy to be conformed to the world. That's these outward pressures that press upon us and push us into the world's mold. The peer pressure and passions and desires and it, the world can be so attractive. It's such a lure and we can so easily become like the world and be conformed to the world. But God so, tells us to be transformed through the renewing of your mind. This is to be changed, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And this is the reality of what the, what the gospel is. 
is to be right with God. And as you're right with God, it's to sacrifice yourself to your master to be that willing bondservant, to use another illustration. Here I am, Lord, use me. Remember Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Why do you call yourself a Christian, but you don't do what I command you to do? Why do you go to church and, and then just leave everything at church and you don't conduct your life daily as you, my word, God would say, as it does? And so King Ahaz, you see the pride and you see the selfishness of this man who would take his children and would burn them alive. And what was he concerned about? He was concerned about the benefit that he was going to receive from it. If you could back up and tell Jotham, Jotham, don't leave those high places because they're going to lead to the human sacrifice of your own grandchildren. And so Jotham did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not completely. And anything left half undone can be a whole curse within our lives. Remember the issue of the God who is and the gods of the land who aren't was decided long ago. We saw that lesson in the book of Exodus when God overcame the Egyptian gods. The Egyptian gods were considered to be the most powerful gods in the world because Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world. That's kind of what the mindset was back then. If our gods are stronger than your gods, then we're going to be the powerful nation. And so God cut through all the middlemen and all the other nations and he entered into Egypt and he destroyed, if you will, their gods. And he released his people and he led his people in 40 years. He led them into the promised land and he expelled the gods of the land of the people from the promised land. But the problem is the Israelites kept resurrecting them and pulling them back to a place of prominence. Apostle Paul was dealing with this in, in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. He's dealing with the old man and the new man, and I want to do what is right in the sight of God, but I find myself not doing right in the sight of God. Certain things I don't want to do anymore in my life, but then I find myself doing those things. And, and he comes to this, this dilemma in, in verse 24 of Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's understanding the depravity of his soul. We looked at that on, on Thursday night in Psalm 14. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will, who can deliver me from this body of death? Now, when he says body of death, it was common in the Roman kingdom. <clears throat> if you killed somebody, that they would strap that dead body onto your back. And this is this body, that's why he's saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and the idea was, is that body decays, it's going to drip on you, it's, it's going to infect you, and you're going to live, or you're going to, well, you're going to die a slow, miserable death. And that's his mindset. I'm carrying around this dead body all the time. This man who I used to be. And he's been killed in Christ, but he seems to be still on top of me. And he's going back and forth. In verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh and law of sin. And so again, there's this 
dilemma, but then he enters into chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When he uses the word condemnation, well, the man who would have that dead body strapped to his back, he was condemned to death. But now he's using this term, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The body, the body has been done away with as far as the east is from the west. But what do we start, keep doing? We keep trying to find the body and put the body back on. It makes no sense. Well, again, we're under the influence of our sinful nature at time, and we revisit these things, and it just brings misery into our lives. And so, back in Ahaz, he's going to pay a price, but the future generations and the people who he has stewardship over are going to pay a price as well for his actions. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light to them. So Isaiah was speaking of a society that was completely corrupt. Now I read that, why? Because Isaiah is a contemporary of Ahaz. Remember Isaiah? He is the court historian. And the year that King Uzziah died, he said he saw God. Well, he was a court historian during the reign of Jotham and also the reign of Ahaz, even through to Hezekiah, who is Ahaz's son, who will succeed him. And so he saw all of these things that were going on, Isaiah, and it was just beyond him. Second thing that a person has when he does not have God. Well, we saw corrupt character. Secondly, is a corrupt collaborations. And verses 5 through 6, it says, Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of King Syria, and they defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Remilia, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And skipping to verse 8, And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, daughters, and they took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Now, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, are coming up against Judah because Ahaz has refused to ally himself with them against Assyria. Assyria is kind of like ISIS. It's this big power in the area, and these people are bloodthirsty, and these people are brutal. So Syria, so keep in mind, don't get confused, there's Syria and Assyria. So Syria and the northern country of Israel, they get together and they form a confederation hoping to strengthen themselves and be able to withstand Assyria. And they're wanting Judah to come alongside, but Ahaz won't do it. And because Ahaz won't do it, they invade. And what they're hoping to do is to defeat him, to remove him from the throne, or to kill him and put somebody who is a more friendly ruler on that throne. And so they attack him, they kill one of his sons and some of his officials, but they can't penetrate the walls of Jerusalem, so they move on and take cities that are more vulnerable. And so what we saw here in verses 5 through 6, Syria took many people prisoner and a lot of the plunder from the land and brought them to Damascus. And Israel, the northern kingdom, did the same thing, 
But see, Israel, because these are still the people of God and they have God's word, they're held responsible for what they do, and they've crossed the line. Look over at verses 13 through 14. They're bringing all of these captives back into the northern kingdom, and they're met by a group of prophets, and they said to them, You shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Verse 15, Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives from the spoil, and they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink, and anointed them. And they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys, so they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and they returned to Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So as godless as the southern kingdom had become, the northern kingdom always was. But these prophets are telling them, you're in violation of the word of God. The wrath of God is already against you, and now you're just going to compound it and make things worse. What you need to see here is, is the standard that God uses for these lines that man can so easily step over. The northern kingdom was never blessed. Why? Because they worship false idols. But God says, he who touches you, touches his people, touches the apple of his eye. And as they went and they attacked really their own brethren, the prophets were warning. God sent the prophets to tell them, no, if you do this, judgment is coming upon you. They were warned in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 39. And if one of your brethren who dwells with you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Well, that was their intent, was to make slaves out of these captives that they had taken. What we need to see next is how in the midst of all that is going on, God protecting his people and honoring his word. This should, as these people were returned, there was no reason apart from God that they were returned. This should have gotten the attention of Ahaz. God is gracious. He's giving him warnings. It's in the time of trouble and even correction that God, he is always our help. So God has not completely forsaken Ahaz, although Ahaz is in the process of completely forsaking God. So there's a situation still. He's been reduced now because of the invasion of Israel and Syria, and Assyria is still on the horizon. So now, again, I said he was a man who tried to manipulate the situation. He's going to be proactive in this, and he's going to speak to Assyria. In verse 16, At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines also had invaded the cities and the lowlands of the south of Judah and taken Beth Shemesh, Ahazelon, Gedoroth, Sukkoth with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimza with its villages, and they dwelt there. So we've got these surrounding nations that are used to be under tribute to Judah, but now they're taking liberties with Judah. And really, God has taken his hand of protection off, and so this king feels he's got to do something. He's got to align himself with somebody for protection. Verse 19. The Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Also, Tiglath 
Peleser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasuries from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king and from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of uh, Assyria, but he did not help him. So he's going to have to do something. Assyria's coming, and so he basically, and it was kind of common. What is necessary for me to pay you guys off that you'll go away and you'll leave us alone? Or they would buy also um, countries and have them go attack others, but he's just concerned about his own hide right now. And so Assyria gives him a price, and so he goes, and he goes into the house of the Lord and takes the holy things, the things that were used to worship God. He's not doing that anymore, so it doesn't really matter to him. He's taxing people. He gets a big bundle of money together. I don't know how much it was. He sends it off to these Assyrians. They don't care. They're still coming. They don't care. They're not going to protect him. They're not going to fight for him. And so finally, he goes and he aligns himself with them. That's what we see. The third thing that a person has when he does not have God, he has corrupt character, corrupt collaborations, and constant compromise. Verses 22 through 25. Now, in the time of his distress, so again, he doesn't know what to do now, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord, that is, King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. We're we're given a little bit more detail of what he has done. He basically put himself under tribute to Assyria. He was afraid of losing his kingdom, and so he became what's called a vassal state where he would pay tribute to, or taxes, if you will, to Assyria every year. And so he got Assyria off his back. Well, while he was there, the king of Assyria called all of his vassal states unto himself, and it's believed he gave demonstrations of what would happen to them, and these were very cruel people. They would skin people alive and just very torturous things in order to keep them in line. But while he was there in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 10 through 11, it says, Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath uh, Peleser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest to design the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back to Damascus. And again, you see the magnitude of what this man has done and where his heart or how far his heart is from the Lord. He goes and he's copying this pagan altar, this place that they're offering sacrifices to these false gods. And so he has this priest make another one according to that design. And what did he do? He came and he took away the altar that was designed by God and moved it out of its place and put this pagan altar in its place, more than likely to win the affection of the king of Assyria. But we must keep in mind the purpose of the altar commanded by God. And we can do this, our society does this today. Because what was the altar designed by God? What was that meant to do? 
It was the place where the sacrifice was offered. Why? For the covering of sins. So that man may serve God, man may be right in the sight of God. Without the letting of blood, there is no remission of sins. Man does the same thing today that Ahaz did back then when he removed the altar as we replaced the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ with our own works, with our abilities, with our intellect, whatever it might be. But this was to be the place where God was worshipped and God was honored. And so you see the heart of this man as he takes it out and he puts this pagan altar in there. This is like the ultimate insult to God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 18, Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdoms of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so that altar, it was God's desire, not the one that he created, but the one that God gave the instruction to Moses and the one that they were offering sacrifice on, that was really the one that Solomon had built. And that was the place that God was to be honored. Instead, he acted foolishness once more. King Ahaz is pushing the altar of God aside for the altar of a God who does not exist. And then lastly, we see eternal corruption, verses 26 through 27. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. It kind of seems like a contradiction, but what they would do is they would take a body and they would put it in an eater box, is what they called it. And so when it says they buried him in the city of Jerusalem, they put him in this box and they wait for the bacteria and everything to eat all the flesh off the bones until the bones are left. And then they will take the bones to their final resting place. When it says they rested with their fathers, that means that the bones were placed with the rest of their ancestors. Well, except for the evil kings the people realize that they're not worthy. They're not worthy to be in this section of kings. And as, as he was an idolater, as he replaced the throne, uh, not the throne of God, but the altar of God, they understood his eternal, the eternal ramifications of this. And so the idea is they're removing him from the secession of kings that we know would lead up to Jesus Christ. But the reality is this man was there and this man caused much damage. The unbelief and faithfulness of one man does much harm. So again, we need to revisit the opportunities we have to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to not be conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of our mind, to have influence and purpose into the lives that God brings into our lives. There's an awesome opportunity there. We as a church, I pray that we're people that bring that into our homes, into our, our relationships, but the church as well. It's the purpose that we had a feeding last Wednesday at Mercy House to be an expression of God's love. Mercy House is an outreach to homeless. We had a feeding there last, last Wednesday. But just to express God's love to the community. I mentioned it this morning. I'm doing an invocation at a board meeting at the airport here in Ontario. It's just another opportunity to reach into our city. 
And we have to be of that mindset to be reaching outside of ourselves for the glory of God because our Christianity has to be worked out. What God has done inside must be worked out to those who are around us. And that's simply for the purpose, not my salvation, I'm already saved. But I work these things out so that others may be saved as well, that others may be influenced to the glory of God also. So we must consider what kind of legacy is it that we are leaving. And I just pray that God will enable us to finish well for the purpose of that legacy. But Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Ahaz, unfortunately, has got a very rotten name. Next week, we'll be looking at Hezekiah, one who, well, he was a righteous man who was blessed. Father, we just thank you for this evening, Lord. And again, these words written such a long time ago, but are so pertinent to our life, our times, and our society today. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who are counted faithful. Lord, enable us to endure to the end, that our faith would be strong and our salvation made sure in the hearts, Lord, of those whom we were able to have influence in. And so, Father, just fill us with your spirit for those purposes. Lord, I lift out those who have come tonight. I pray that you would go before them. I pray that you would bless them in all that they do. Pray, Father, that we would continually have a heart that seeks after you. Be glorified through our humble lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Just one announcement. Um, Teacher training is next Saturday. Uh, If you are a teacher, we we are requiring that you be there. If you wanted to know more about children's ministry or you feel maybe a call to children's ministry, we invite you to come as well. That's next Saturday. God bless you guys. Have a great week. As we close with this last song, it's... uh apologize for the internet feed we're having with the presentation, but the uh, words are, create in me a pure heart, grant to me a new start, keep me walking close to you, heal my imperfection, show me the direction, I must turn to be renewed, have mercy on me. Make that your prayer as we learn a little bit about being a living sacrifice, that we would ask our, our God to create in us a pure heart.
Father God, we do just thank you that you do have that mercy in our lives. You have granted us that mercy by the shed blood of your son. Help us to walk victoriously in that. And all God's people said, amen.